0: Welcome to the Glossy Podcast. I'm your host, Jill Manoff, and today I sit down with Matt Alexander, who is the co-founder and CEO of Three-Year-Old Neighborhood Goods. Because the company aims to be a department store for the modern consumer, I wanted to ask Matt how it's responded to recent changes in consumer habits and whether department stores' fizzling reputation has hurt or helped the business. Welcome, Matt.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah, you're not your average Joe department store. Tell us about the business model for those who don't know of neighborhood goods.
1: Yeah, so we describe ourselves as being a new type of department store, uh, which is obviously varying degrees of accurate depending on how you look at it. Um, generally, though, uh, the way it works is to the consumer it presents as you know a really elevated uh, retail space. We've got a restaurant. It's all of our staff, all of our design, and general aesthetic. So it presents as a cohesive sort of retail environment. uh, But the landscape of brands changes very frequently. And it's more of a sort of smaller format space. So about 10,000 square feet, generally. So as and when you visit, you're going to come across something different each time, whether it's, you know, brands refreshing the product they have there, or entirely new brands launching. Uh, For brands, it's something that's a lot of different things to a lot of different people. It's sort of a hop, skip and a jump away from being a pop-up for some of them. For others, it's more like something close to what they might consider to be wholesale. For others, it's more around testing real estate. For others, it's more of a marketing channel. Um, so it creates this opportunity in this landscape and ecosystem where they can show up in a physical way um, and a digital way, leverage the restaurants, leverage all these different bits and pieces to inexpensively get in front of a great consumer and uh, accomplish all sorts of different goals. And so we don't operate at wholesale. Um, the product is ostensibly on consignment and then brands usually sort of pay us a fixed fee to be in the space in addition to a revenue share. Generally, we optimize and hope for that to be um, just as if not more profitable than a, your average sort of wholesale relationship. And then in addition to that, they get a lot of data it's more of a one-to-one relationship. We don't have to run towards sales or otherwise. It's it's just a different sort of basis for the relationship, both with the brands and the consumer. So it's a department store to an extent, um, but you know, uh, a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But that's the core of it.
0: Yeah, eliminating that wholesale model, I think, is the, a big differentiator. Uh, we tend to, and I've seen this in other publications as well, to lump you in this idea of, retail as a service. And we talk about Showfield and we talk about Leap, which is actually an entirely different business model. Um, but how would you describe, uh, do you hate that title, that label, and also the big differentiator between you and these other guys?
1: Yeah. Um, I do hate that title a little bit. (laughs) It comes up a lot. (laughs) Um, it comes up a lot. I mean, I think when we first announced the concept, uh, the one that was much worse was um, in the early days, like the summer of twenty eighteen. People were saying it was like the wee work of retail, and I had a very allergic reaction to that. Um, I think for us, look, I mean, what we've sort of set out to build and what we built our initial reputation on and in the initial sort of fundraising pitch and otherwise was um, this vision for opening up so much opportunity for predominantly direct consumer digitally native brands and creating this new sort of physical ecosystem. But we also had this real focus on some of these traditional aspects of the retail equation, like the merchant perspective, having a real curatorial point of view, thinking differently about real estate so that we'd be showing up in really interesting markets like Plano, Texas, uh, before we show up in markets like New York and LA, um, and just running down that road. And so for us, um, when we opened in New York there was a headline or a sub-headline in Fast Company that was "Hello, uh, oh, Bye Bye Barney's Hello Neighborhood Goods. And I don't think we're there yet, but I think that's sort of intuitively sort of where we want to play. is more of that sort of elevated multi-brand equation. Um, so in context of the marketplace, yeah, Leap, I think... Um, yeah, we've been described as competitors with them before, and I know them decently well. And I think they would probably say the same thing, which is I think we could probably exist more as a complement of each other, right? Where a lot of these brands may come and pilot something with us and then may need their own space, but they're not quite ready to run it yet. um, Where something like that would make a lot of sense. Uh, For something like Showfields, I'm not entirely current on exactly what they're up to at the moment, but they've always aired much more on the sort of E experienced side of things where it's been uh, heading into this sort of artistic direction and sort tr- of trying to create more of this sort of uh, environment that speaks a similar language to something like the Museum of Ice Cream, but with like a retail sort of add-on. Uh, for us, you know, the, the department store descriptor, I've already said, is relatively inaccurate, but I do think it's instructive as to like where we want to go. And so I think... In context of the marketplace, there's there's not really anyone else that's sort of going after this sort of particular niche, aside from a lot of really well-established department stores that are starting to pivot a little bit and do smaller format spaces. So there's not many startups that we would see to be real sort of core competitors or ideological competitors. Even Um, we really see much more competition and and a, a lot more of that competitive spirit with a lot of the larger and incumbent department stores more than anyone else.
0: Yeah. So as a competition that they're presenting, it's more so um, through their kind of shop and shops and like curated, curated shop and shops as opposed to the entire uh, store and what they've got going on there.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, look, I mean, reading anything from glossy to business of fashion, all these different publications over the past decade, you would have seen a lot of articles that would have been paving the way towards a concept like neighborhood goods, right? Um, Everyone had sort of noticed and was really pursuing and following this momentum around direct consumer brands and the general shift to more digital storytelling and generally what the opportunity is there. Uh, What we did when we came along was really sort of met a lot of opportunity in the marketplace, introduced a lot of new ideas, of course, but sort of ran along from there. But, you know, various companies had been dabbling with it beforehand. You know, we had seen uh, the edit uh, at Roosevelt Field. We had seen uh, concepts like story, obviously, early days. Um, It works in a very different way again. But we'd seen a lot of these playful retail concepts. For a lot of the mall-owning groups that were dabbling, um, I think... They had recognized the opportunities to sort of white box a space and have cameras in the space and to have, quote unquote, modular fixturing. Um, but it's that taste piece that's that's the real challenge. And so the constituent components of a given concept in the retail space right now could be relatively similar on paper. So, you know, if you do shop in shops or otherwise, um, what I think has become our real philosophy and perspective is that the competitive differentiation and the real opportunity really is derived from, uh, the feeling. And, and that's the sum total of all of these parts, right? So we, we certainly get compared to a lot of other groups in the space. Um, but I think for us, what, what continues to be the area that we're playing in, I just don't, haven't seen many other people doing it is, um, we think a lot about the balance of the art and science of the industry, right? And I think we are probably more on the art side of things than the science, although it fluctuates. Um, I think a lot of these other companies are more on the science side. By default, they have to be. Um, And so, yeah, you know, all to say, you know, there's a lot of interesting stuff happening in the space it has been overdue for a lot of disruption and change. And so uh, we're alongside some great companies that are doing interesting things. But in terms of anyone that's sort of Directly doing what we do, I would point more towards the Nordstroms and Bloomingdale's of the universe more than anyone else.
0: Yeah, for sure. So, to the curation is where the competition is, um, and like you said, if you're looking at the art versus the the science of it all, who who is working for you? Who is ensuring this really distinct curation, differentiated? Are these traditional retail folks? Are they design folks, or are they tech people?
1: Yeah. It's a real cross-section. It, it's a lot of folks that have spent a lot of time in the retail industry. Um, Our brand partnerships team has been growing and evolving a lot over the years. And we haven't actually announced it or acknowledged it publicly yet, but we've really been building out that team this year. And so uh Amy Novlin, who's previously um, of TSG in the venture space, has joined and she's our uh, chief revenue officer, and she's running and building a really sort of phenomenal brand partnerships team. And it's a lot of folks that have worked at companies like Verishop and Goop and all sorts of others in that space. Uh, we also just recently welcomed uh, Roslyn Karamoko to the team, who is the founder of a concept in a similar vein to Neighborhood Goods, but has been around a lot longer called uh, Detroit is the New Black, which is focused on black founded brands in the Detroit area. And they have a physical space there, and that concept is continuing on. Uh, but Roslyn is joining our team to really sort of uh, bring a lot of that merchant perspective to bear, but also to really sort of have an outset outset mandate around pursuing underrepresented founders and brands for our ecosystem. And so we have a lot of these folks that sort of have that experience on that side of things. Um, but you see people from all over the spectrum. You know, there's people that are brand new in their careers. You have people that are much more experienced. Um, I think the people that, the, the, the sort of unifying factor across all of these people is really that uh, they care. And right. they care a lot. And there's a real focus around the storytelling piece. There's a real focus and care around things like design. Uh, there's a real focus and care about things like, you know, the stories behind a lot of these brands that we work with and the integrity of the products that we work with. Um, and that, you know, doesn't really know an intellectual background, right? You could have done anything in your career, but ultimately ended up with a general perspective of caring about, you know, X, Y, Z, given product or brand. And so everyone that's there is sort of unified by some degree of passion around that aspect of things.
0: Yeah. Well, you mentioned brand partnerships and putting more focus there. Uh, what does a brand partnership look like? I know that you've done a recent collaboration with The Arrivals, who which I'm a big fan of. But is it about collaborations? What's a, what partnerships are we talking about?
1: Yeah. So in the early days, um, when we first opened in Plano, uh, that space is about fourteen thousand square feet. When you carve out space for backstock and restaurant and everything else, we ended up with kind of a grid layout that we thought was going to house about fifteen brands. And so we assumed that most of these brands would want, you know anywhere from 200 to 500 square feet, maybe a little bit more occasionally. And that's largely how we launched. So like Buck Mason, him Stadium Goods, Draper James, all these brands had a few hundred square feet apiece. Um, and that worked well and it was good. But I think what we quickly found was that there was a lot of demand from the consumer and also for brands for a little bit more uh, competition within given cash grays and also a little bit more uh, you know density in a given cash gris. And so... Um, You know, in some categories, that's not welcome. You know, you have certain brands that won't be in the same room as others that they see to be competitive. But for others in the denim space or eyewear space or otherwise, they really need and want and ask for more competition, right? And so we sort of very quickly went from uh, this theory of launching with 15 brands to launching with closer to 30 when we first opened. And um, we found opportunity for brands that wanted to sort of have product placement, essentially, you know, they would have, uh, you know, FrameBridge framed the artwork on the walls uh, and the artwork within those frames was done by a local artist. Sonos had their speakers in the ceiling and so on and so forth. Um, these days, that same space has closer to 70 brands at any given time. So we're much, much more dense, right? So it's become less about, here's a brand, here's a brand, here's a brand. It's become more about... Um, how do we think about it more by cash grade, more by department, right? You know, it's not a new idea. Um, but how do you think about having sort of, you know, what is ostensibly a lead or presenting brand in a given cash grade, and how do you tell that story? Um, and so we head that direction at the moment. And so the, ultimately, the path we're on at the moment is heading towards sort of 75 to 100 brands per space right now. Some of them overlap across all stores, but there's a lot that only do one store or another, you know, commensurate with whatever goals they have. Um, And generally the goal isn't to have a full product range from every single brand. It's not about sort of cramming all of them into the space and sort of stuffing it full of all these different sort of concession stands of brands. Um, It's about something that's more blended, um, more subtle, um, and so the example I've been giving a lot is, um, if I'm in New York and I spill coffee on my shirt, I know that I can go to XYZ department store to go buy the same shirt. And so I may go, if I don't spill coffee on my shirt, I have no reason to go to any of those department stores really. Cause I can go when I'm at home or otherwise it's more of a utility based relationship, um, with Neighborhood Goods, on the other hand, I would have a good reason to go because there's a lot of discovery, there's the restaurants, there's all these different pieces to that equation. Um, But the opposite end of that is that if I spill coffee on my show, I don't really have that much reason to go to Neighborhood Goods. And so that's been this area where we've been playing a little bit more and thinking about how we've had amazing brands in the footwear space for argument's sake, where you have, you know, Rothy's and uh, Stadium Goods and Atoms and... Thousandfell and all these others that rotate through our ecosystem. Um, How can we continue that sort of through line of those really interesting brands that are manifesting on that sort of relatively short-term basis or ever-changing basis, uh, even if they're there for a little bit of a longer period, uh, but punctuate those areas also with brands that we see to be sort of best in class or products more specifically. So um, that's what we're doing at the moment and really thinking about more sort of categorical curation so still having this real sort of thrust around uh, brand activations and otherwise and that continues to be the core currency and experience of our stores um but doing very 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 targeted curation around those that's really just purely based upon a merchant perspective
0: okay that makes perfect sense your stores, are there three right now? I know you've got Austin, you've got Plano, 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 <laughs> you've got Chelsea, um, and also online. Uh, how many stores, and what's the breakdown? How, what Are sales moving online?
1: Yeah, so we have uh, those three stores and digital. Uh, digital in the early days was one of those things that was um, quite controversial. Um, you know, I, g- generally our concept was quite controversial. A lot of these brands had never done physical retail before, or never done something you know, close to wholesale, they had always had complete control. Um, and so the notion that we were gonna be the staff, the design, uh, all these different pieces, it takes a lot of trust, right? And, and fortunately we built that very quickly. Uh, digital was one of those things where uh, a lot of brands were apprehensive about the potential of cannibalizing their own channels and everything else online. A lot of them, uh, the more sophisticated ones out there that had been doing this a little bit longer, had had bad experiences with larger department stores that have sort of cannibalized uh, their search advertising in particular and a lot of these other sort of uh, one-on-one things that you're not meant to do but often happen with a lot of these larger companies. Um, and so there was a certain amount of concern there, but it very quickly went away. And so we went from having a small smashing of products online when we first opened in November 2018 to having probably most online by the end of the following year. And then uh, with the outset of the pandemic, everything went online. And so the version of the site you see today uh, is actually developed by me. Um, we've had various different versions. It's not to take credit for all the design and all these other pieces. A lot of that was done by really talented folks at a few different agencies. Um, but um, the version of it today is is very rudimentary and and certainly not going to win many awards, but it's been performing really well. So digital grew for us in 2020, 1,000% year over year or thereabouts. Um, And so, you know, for that, for us, in terms of the share of the overall business, I don't know it off the top of my head, but generally, you know, I think we see it as the opportunity to effectively have and see it as a fourth store in our current ecosystem and to see that to continue to rise proportionate to the amount of stores we have. And so, Generally, the philosophy for us has always been that we want the modern consumer to be able to dictate their own terms as to how they want to shop. So uh, for a lot of them, they find you know physical retail to be an anxiety-inducing experience. Or they just want to be able to get their one particular thing and they want to get it quickly uh, or otherwise. So we really lean into same-day delivery, store pickup, uh, all these other pieces. We also allow for obvious sort of... Uh, current trends around things like showrooming and otherwise, so there's a lot of QR codes in the space. We have our own iOS app that launched with us back when we opened that allowed for a huge amount of really interesting experiences. We've been redeveloping that, and that will come back relatively soon. Uh, we also have a brand new version of the site that will be coming online before the end of the year, uh, which is you know actually sort of something that would be uh, much more compelling and would probably win more awards uh, than what <laughs> I've put together. Um, but you know, I think generally what we see from... An opportunity there is is not to sort of obviate the need for stores. Stores continue to be the primary uh, focus of our business. Um, We see digital, though, as this real opportunity around uh, localized logistics. uh, But we also see real opportunity there to really sort of uh, separate the signal from the noise. You know, there's a huge amount of marketplaces out there that are ultimately in the business of featuring thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of different products, Uh, we decidedly do not want to do that. Um, And so uh, the more we can elevate the why and the storytelling that we do very well in the stores to the digital realm, the better. It can serve as something that can really sort of augment and create something special to exist alongside a lot of existing channels for The brands, consumers, and otherwise. And so that's the focus there. And then the other piece to our business um, is restaurants, which have also been growing rapidly. Uh, So we, uh, and I can't take any credit for it, but the team behind our restaurants got incredibly creative during the pandemic and ostensibly took our retail model and applied it to the kitchen spaces and started doing ghost kitchen activations with delivery-only concepts and otherwise. And that was an incredibly meaningful experiment that uh, we did pop-ups with Sandoichi and 8 Mile Pies and all sorts of other ones that drove a huge amount of attention and traffic uh, to the spaces and just really unlocked a lot of creativity. And that's paved the way towards us uh, getting into our first new category in a while, which is CPG. So we just launched... A concept called the marketplace earlier this year, uh, where we have, you know, great modern consumer product brands uh, like Truff and Flyby Jing showing up in our stores, but also on the menus in our restaurants. Um, and so, you know, we have the core model of, you know, retail in the stores. Each store has a little bit of a different mix of brands. Uh, the brands typically pay to be in the stores and then we also take a rev share but there's a little bit of nuance there sometimes it's just a fee sometimes it's just rev share and very 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 selectively and rarely we do a little bit of wholesale Um then there's digital which is largely just the same but built on top of those stores we have restaurants and then yes to your point around the arrivals we have collaborations so that's become a big focus and it was going to be a much much bigger focus in 2020 but uh, everyone's supply chain fell apart and uh, everything was so uncertain. So it largely got pushed out. But we've done collaborations with groups like The Arrivals, and lots of others. And uh, that's going to be a big, big, big area of focus for us, both this year and next. Our private label line has done really, really well, um, okay. largely as a complement to everything else that's been happening in the ecosystem. Um, you know, people come in and buy a pair of Thousand Fell shoes or buy some. A S O P hand wash or whatever it is, but they also pick up, you know, a neighborhood Goods smiley T shirt or otherwise.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: and so we see that as a real opportunity to continue to build a new revenue stream there as well.
0: For sure. Well, tell me what you're promising these brands. Is it um, date You're giving them the data. You mentioned that. Um, is it the opportunity to tell the story? How are you doing that online versus in store? Are you promising foot traffic? I know you're not in typical mall area Malls uh, usually or maybe ever. Um, but yeah, tell me what, what what the promise is, what the contract is there.
1: Um, yeah, so we look at real estate really in five different buckets. So uh, one would be a major metropolitan market like we have with Chelsea, a huge amount of built-in traffic and exposure. Uh, the customer there is probably already pretty aware of your brand, and it's really more about uh, reactivating lapsed customers and or opening up Uh, more near-term physical availability to existing customers. Then there's the second type, which would be more up-and-coming markets, like what we have in Austin, where it's a customer that might be aware of your brand, they're probably more likely to be aware of your brand, but may not have any physical access to it. So it's about both acquiring a very sort of lucrative customer, um, but it's also about uh, fostering loyalty there. Then you have the third type, which is suburban, like we have in Plano. So... That is a pretty affluent customer that is inclined towards shopping online and shopping with a lot of these brands, but probably hasn't done so too much yet. Um, and so it's a real opportunity to catch them and acquire them earlier in their life cycle. Um, then the fourth type would be malls, which we have not done, but there's a lot of opportunity there with a captive audience inside of a mall to do something interesting. And then the fifth type, which we also haven't done quite yet, is either international or seasonal opportunities, which, again, for a lot of these brands, being able to get into an international market can be incredibly compelling, or into a seasonal market like doing something in the Hamptons over the summer, or doing something in Colorado through the winter, very interesting and gets after a very particular group. So that's the baseline. So what we're thinking about is less about the name of a place and more about the feature set of a given location and what that might afford a brand. So... um, A lot of brands want to do pop-ups on South Congress in Austin, but there's really scarce real estate. Uh, Equally, in a development like the one we belong to, Music Lane, uh, there's a lot of exclusives. So Lululemon's there, Equinox is there. So if you have an activewear brand, you can't show up there unless you're at Neighborhood Goods. Um, Then there's only so much other option. We can sort of circumvent those rules, uh, given the size of our space and the complexity and sort of... uh, General diversity of our revenue mix, um, and so we present a lot of opportunity there. Um, but you know, generally, what you're going to be looking at is, you know, some brands want to come in and just generate sales. In which case, you can probably go to any of them, right? Uh, others want to come in and really want to acquire customers, and then it's a question of like which customers do you really want to acquire. In which case, you may do all three, you may do one, you may do two, whatever it is. Uh, you may come in really just wanting to build brand adjacency and marketing awareness. Again, it's gonna be a different blend of all of them. For others, it's about learning how real estate works, how it works to run a store. So they may come in and really just sort of watch and learn. Um, So the way it all works is, you know, we focus a lot on training, storytelling in the stores. And so our teams are really the sort of uh, most amazing and exciting bit. where they can test different messaging for different brands. They can, uh, on the fly, be talking to different types of customers. They can also be identifying different opportunities that wouldn't be otherwise clear and obvious to the brand. So an example I've given a lot over the years, um, we found out really early on that uh, customers that were shopping stadium goods were highly likely to also be really engaged customers for primary, the kids' brand. Um, oh, drastically different price point, but people would be coming in and spending, you know, a thousand dollars on a pair of sneakers, uh, and then walking across the other side of the room and spending, you know, a hundred dollars on a few different onesies. And it was sort of hip parents coming in, right? And that's a lot of opportunity there for, from a marketing perspective, uh, from a customer cohort perspective, and otherwise, to really start thinking creatively about uh, the connection between the two and to start unlocking a lot of opportunities there. And so, um, you know. The short answer is we do a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Um, generally, what we are aiming towards, though, is generating something that's efficient and successful for you for whatever those goals are on the way in. We have brands like Tonal that come in, and it's purely about demos, right? They they don't want to sell anything directly in the space. They want you to come in and tr- try out their hardware in person. And that has been a prelude to them really expanding and building out a lot more of their own stores, uh, we've done the same thing with a company like Hems and Hers, where uh, we, I think, today it's still are their only physical retail. And it was about sort of really understanding how they could show up as a prescription-oriented company in a physical environment and how they could tell stories around uh, heavily stigmatized things. Same thing with companies like Maud uh, and all sorts of others. And so we're a pretty flexible and sort of dynamic platform that allows for a lot of different interpretive ways of, Uh, working with us Um, it does fall into a system it's just the system may not be immediately obvious certainly not to the consumer and and maybe not even to the brands it it sort of largely nets out to being a relatively bespoke relationship Um, and so that's roughly how it plays out and then yeah we pass along opt-in in email addresses we don't just pass along everything uh we leverage uh computer vision to get a sense of traffic and demographics but nothing personally identifiable or gross around facial recognition or otherwise uh but generally giving people a sense of how long are people spending in a given area what is the engagement looking like all these different sort of trends right and so you end up with something that can be very informative i think the best part of the whole thing though is really the human aspects where it's about um How our teams are coordinating with you and picking up different insights around all these different sort of individual data points and experience points. Um, You know, back in the day with Stadium Goods, I remember the founders would be texting with uh, the store staff and sort of getting real-time feedback around like which colors were needed and otherwise so they could be really reactive right in the moment. Same thing with Buck Mason and a few others. Um, These days we sort of, Try not for that to happen quite so much so it's not so stressful for the store teams, <laughs> but, um, but still try to keep that line of communication really open. And so trying to sort of give as much sort of uh, qualitative feedback, as much as quantitative, as much as possible so that we can sort of really keep things in a really sort of dynamic position.
0: We'll be right back after this quick break. What's neighborhood goods marketing play? Are you like when you find stadium goods, that's cool parents. You're giving that information to the brand. Are you taking that information in and running and building a strategy around that marketing across channels? What are you guys up to?
1: Uh, You know, honestly, like not that much. Um, We just brought in, uh, someone new to run marketing for us just in recent months. His name's, uh, Derek McCarthy and he's our CMO now, um, joined in a relatively similar window to Amy. Um, and he has a lot of background uh, on the brand side of things, helping build brands like Dosist and others. He's even the f- co-founder of one of the brands we work with called High Protein in the CPG space. Um, and so we're really just building a lot of strategy there at the moment. Um, historically, the primary lever we had that we really used a lot was events, um, which obviously flew out the window in 2020. Um, but that was the core vehicle. in In 2019, we hosted uh, two or three events every week for the whole year. And that's anything from you know, Serena Williams coming and launching a new product line, to kids writing letters to Santa, to flower arranging classes, to uh, mm. Equinox hosting a run, like lots of different things, right? And so that was a key vehicle. Um, these days, I think it's it's the balance of a very loyal customer we've built with Neighborhood Goods. Uh, mixed with a very loyal customer that these brands are building. Um, and so when you launch with us, you know we can only do so much to sort of approximate your thousand true fans. But if you bring a few of them to the space, the likelihood is that they're going to stay and they're going to keep coming back. And for as long as your brand is there, they're certainly going to be shopping you. But they're also very likely to sort of be exposed to some of these other brands. When you start doing that at scale with, 70 brands in the same space, you get a huge amount of opportunity for brands uh, to introduce really well-qualified customers to each other in the same room. And then we, in offering a positive experience, the restaurants and all these other different pieces offer a lot of opportunity there as well. Um, And so it's all about building that loyalty, really, uh, and fostering a good experience. And I think ultimately, you know, if a customer comes in and doesn't necessarily shop right then and there, But they then go and shop those brands online and they see this big halo effect, which is what tends to happen um, in addition to obviously the sales inside the store. That's a net win for us and adds to the stickiness of what happens. And so we're not necessarily taking a revenue share of every transaction that happens outside of the ecosystem, of course. Um, But that gives us that much more leverage in the relationship with the brands and the reason why you would show up in the first place. And so um, marketing right now, we're not doing any paid media. We've been dabbling a little bit over the summer again with bringing events back. We've been launching some brands for the first time. Um, Not really the first time, but it's sort of hit more of a regular rhythm. Uh, So there was a concept called So Gay Rosé that launched with us in June as part of Pride. Um, We've had all sorts of others coming more recently. Uh, Beyond that, you know, the collaborative piece that we spoke about is a big one where, you know, we can be that... Uh, platform to bring some of these brands together or our brand with these others to create some exclusivity um the B piece is obviously big there as well um you know generally you know the store is a stage it presents this opportunity for so many different stories to be told that speak to different people and that brings a lot of different people to the spaces uh in significant numbers and then the responsibility for us is how do we catch those people, right? Like, not in a gross way, but how do we build that relationship? So we have a loyalty program that we've sort of been quietly piloting for a few months that will sort of have more of a formal launch here in the next few weeks um, called Neighborhood Perks, uh, which is meaningful. Um, we have, the obviously, the cadence and launch schedule around new brands coming in all the time that builds a lot of excitement. Um as we get beyond the pandemic at some point, events will come back in earnest. Um, And we'll certainly be getting more into paid media and otherwise there as well. Um, But otherwise, it's it's mostly been organic and it's mostly been about leveraging the platforms that a lot of these brands built um, and working out how best we can have them speak to each other in a way that's fairly unique to our little ecosystem.
0: Yeah. For the loyalty program, what kind of value is valuable to your customer? Is it about uh, early access or discounts? What goes into that?
1: Yeah, it's less for us about transactions and more about relationships. Um, It's more about community and a sense of being included, right? And so um, it's about recognizing that you care about 10 brands and you particularly care about, for argument's sake, Uh, the wellness space. So every time we launch a wellness brand, we can give you early access. Um, It also means for our brands that they get a really sort of well-qualified test bed and audience to really start speaking to you early. Um, So there's a lot there. For the consumer, yeah, they can get little discounts here and there. They get access to events, there's perks in and around the restaurant. Uh, That has always historically been our main sort of lever there because we don't really do sales much. We have like three sales per year, um, maybe four. Um, but the restaurant giving away a coffee or a glass of rosé or whatever it is with a purchase is really easy for us. And that, that becomes this really useful tool in that toolkit. And so uh, Perks plays into that a little bit. Um, but yeah, for the brands, it's, it's really sort of uh, speaking to that qualified audience and really leveraging that loyalty in a, in a very strategic and tactical way
0: yeah tell me a little bit about uh, more about the in-store experience, so it's about discovery. How often are uh, will the shopper discover new products? How often is that product rotating? Uh, there's a restaurant uh, there's the staff staffed by neighborhood goods that's telling the the brand stories. Uh, what else is are, has that changed in the last two years about what's, I guess the the new standard
1: the The core experience remains the same both pre-pandemic and post, but when we were one store, now we're three. um, You know, I think we would have been more stores if it weren't for the pandemic. But regardless, like, the core sort of thrust there remains the same. And the original thesis was that we would carve the space into quadrants, essentially. And we would assign people to those given areas to become early subject master experts on a given brand that belonged in that area. Um, And that way... Uh, for the first week or two that a brand's in the space, you have these people that would be in a given area that would be extremely knowledgeable on their particular area of the store. Then when we have downtime on like a Monday afternoon or whatever it is, um, they cross-train into different areas around the store. So within a couple of weeks, uh, we're at a point where uh, everyone is pretty knowledgeable on every brand in the space and sometimes faster. So you could be with someone shopping Bank's journal on one side of the room, and then you go over to shop some CPG products, and then you go to pick up some uh, symbiome products in the beauty and wellness space. It can all be one uh, person that's helping you with all of that and being really knowledgeable around all of it. Um, and a lot of it's just around building the texture around that pitch. You know, um, for brands, they have a particular way of telling their story online and their social channels, email, etc., and it has to be very product centric. Um, to an extent at least. Uh for us, where we've always had fun is how do we augment that, right? Because it's not our responsibility to craft this like top-to-bottom pitch for like why this product is best. We'll certainly sort of dabble there because we have a perspective. It's more about um the messaging and contextual messaging um that you wouldn't otherwise be able to pick up from a brand's own website that we can sort of accomplish in a physical space. Um, I think, you know, what has become clear to us in the past couple of years is that a lot of our opportunity is in how we uh, socialize and contextualize product, just the same as influencers do on social channels and otherwise. Um, but you think about the marketplace concept, right? So uh, when we started talking to brands about that in the spring, one of the first things you heard from a lot of them was that one of the main things that had hurt their business over the past uh, year and a half was that they couldn't do sampling, in grocery stores or otherwise. It all switched off. And that is actually a remarkably powerful mechanism for these brands to get in front of people. Because, you know, I don't know about you, but when I go around Whole Foods or Kroger or whatever it is, um, I'm largely just on autopilot. Or if I'm ordering online for delivery, the same thing. There's very little in the way of discovery. Um, And so, you know, I may walk past something that I've seen in an Instagram ad or otherwise, but I'm not overly compelled to pick it up. Whereas, if there's an environment in which they're really focused on that, and then you also add it into the restaurant mix, and you allow for people to go and hang out, have a cocktail that's you know uh, somehow incorporates fly by jing, or they're having a burger that's coffee rubbed by a particular local roastery or otherwise, that goes in a really interesting direction, and it's actually very, very, very powerful for that customer acquisition piece. And so we've been playing a lot there. Um, But yeah, generally what we aim towards is uh, this environment where you can feel very welcome, you're not overly pressured, uh, you can come in just for the restaurant, you can come in just for retail, you can come in for both. um, And it's flexible and fluid throughout. Um, And then in terms of the pace with which it changes... Uh, New brands launch every other Thursday, and there's various sort of cutoffs there. Um, And sometimes, you know, there'll be, you know, 10 that launch one Thursday, and then the next one will be relatively quiet, or it'll be disproportionately weighted towards one location over another. Um, But, you know, last week we launched uh, Departo, Fulton and a number of other brands all on the same day in all stores, right? Uh, Next Thursday, I'm actually not even sure, but that's roughly how it plays out. And then we also have um, replenishment happening all the time. So at the moment, it's a big transition from, you know, summer to fall. Um, And so that's happening all the time as well. And then we're also refreshing the layout of the space pretty frequently. So Plano just went through a more significant overhaul. So, you know, it's approaching... Uh, three years old in the next couple of months. Um, a lot of lessons learned there, right? I already talked about how we set it up as a grid initially. Our space in New York and our space in Austin, on the other hand, are um, much more blended. And so we wanted to accomplish the same thing and sort of break the grid. And so we just did that in Plano. We closed it for a few days and and really refreshed it and opened it up, which has been amazing. Um, and you know, we'll do that in a small way all the time in the other stores, the big thing we've been introducing this year, and it hasn't been something we've talked about much openly and publicly, but will become much more of a thrust of our messaging uh, in the relative near term, is um, we really have started focusing on monthly themes that sort of correlate with the general curatorial philosophy around the brands that are coming in. Uh, so it generally meshes with a general storyline for that time of year uh, that would be obvious to the consumer. And it allows us to sort of think of ourselves almost as a print magazine that comes out each month There's different features that happen regularly and it's about, or columns that happen regularly where it's about how we bring that sort of perspective and opinion to the surface. Um, But it also allows us to really bend and flex in an interesting way around design, around how we create connective tissue between digital and physical, um, how we create a really natural um, sort of storytelling vehicle for how we talk about incoming brands. Um, And so we've been playing with that a lot. And so we're starting to get into a monthly cadence around... Our own editorial sort of photo shoots and otherwise, and a lot of that will become a lot more obvious to everyone with a new site coming online. But um, but there's a lot of other nuance there as well.
0: Yeah, I like break the grid. That kind of speaks to <laughs> department stores necessary direction. I would say. Um, I know that there's a space that you launched mid pandemic, I, I believe so, called the Commons. Um, really, to it was originally the purpose to to help assist support brands hit hard by the pandemic? Was it to keep them in store, to keep your shelves filled? What was the necessity of that? Uh,
1: The idea came around in April 2020. So um, it was a weird start to 2020 for us. You know, Fast Company named us as one of the top 10 most innovative retailers of the year. Um, We won a few other awards right there. Um, Austin opened on March 13th, and I closed all the stores within 24 hours of that on March 14th. And so suddenly, like this, this crazy momentum—we just opened in New York. All these brands were launching. Our private label was just starting to take off. All these other pieces all came to a grinding halt. And I think we needed to sort of reframe ourselves around uh, the next sort of project and the next sort of thing to look forward to. Um, a lot of the inspiration for neighborhood goods. Um, Comes from a concept that I helped create back in 2014 called Unbranded, which is sort of a not-for-profit retail experiment here in Dallas, where we provide free space to independent entrepreneurs, artists, chefs every holiday season. It's run by the City of Dallas now. A group called Downtown Dallas Inc. is a nonprofit, but it became the first of a physical retail for a bunch of brands that are much bigger now, like the Citizenry, Missoni, Main, Ministry of Supply, whoever else. Um, and that sort of notion of having sort of founders be able to connect with these communities and. Uh, get in front of their real sort of loyal fans at a very critical time of year it was very impactful for a lot of people, and so uh, just after we had also you know, gone home working remote, uh, fairly difficult time we were facing you know furloughs, layoffs, pay reductions, all the sorts of you know uh, tough moments from early last year. Right, we needed that sort of thing to focus ourselves on, and so we decided to uh, create sort of a space within each store where we could feature uh, what we thought was going to be predominantly local brands that have been hard hit. Um, Whether through supply chain shortages or um, their business just suddenly collapsed, whatever it was, that we could provide support there. We ended up getting a huge amount of demand for it. And uh, we ran it for as long as we were closed. So we were closed for about 90 days in Texas, about 135 days in New York. And so we ran it Uh, in each location for about that long each. And we had a different mix of brands and it rotated every month. So different groups to tell different stories, to speak to different customers. Um, And it was great. I mean, a bunch of the brands that we launched in that ended up becoming permanent. Um, In terms of like filling space or otherwise, we actually didn't lose any brands while we were closed. We were able to retain all of those relationships, which we weren't necessarily (laughs) expecting, but was obviously welcome. So... Uh, we actually, with the commons, ended up reopening with a lot more brands than we had had when we closed. And so that was, you know, a pleasant surprise, um, but certainly wasn't the focus of it. Um, but it was really just, there wasn't really much purpose beyond, for it beyond just trying to do something that we thought would be the right thing to do. Um, I think it was also a good sort of summary of the things that we have the ability to be able to jump and do that a lot of these larger department stores do not, Right. And so it's it's hard for a large department store to do a big local push and a big sort of not-for-profit push. Um, but we can. And that was also right when digital was picking up for us because a lot of brands were struggling with logistics. A lot of them don't have localized logistics. And our stores ostensibly double as warehouses. And so it really kicked off from there. Um, and so from there, you know, we, um, we ran it for a few months did great. We have intention to bring it back. And so we did it just like as a micro version. We called it sort of jokingly internally, the the tiny commons a few weeks ago uh, where it was tax free weekend in Texas. And we decided to throw together some uh, local brands, give them free space, allow the founders to come in and meet some customers uh, over that weekend. And it did really, really well. And so again, we have some brands from that that want to stay. Um But we intend to bring it back and it won't always be focused on, you know, brands hard hit by COVID, but it may be focused on something that fits within our general value system. And so we'll bring it back.
0: Okay, great. Well, running out of time, but tell me looking forward the next, I don't know, three to five years, uh, how many stores is ideal? How many brands in-store is ideal? What's the breakdown of those brands? Fashion, beauty, CPG, what you got there? (laughs) What are you thinking?
1: Yeah, I, I think... In the early days, when we were first thinking about that 15 brand space, right, the general arithmetic was that uh, four brands would be big name companies, um, you know, the Nikes of the world. Um, then seven or eight of them would be these high growth direct consumer brands like, you know, Stadium Goes Rothies And then the remainder would be some of these more local brands. I think that general ratio and balance is about right. Right. Um, I think what we got wrong, though, was that we needed much more density of those brands in the spaces. They don't all need 500 square feet. Um, that's not the role we play. And so I think somewhere between 50 to 100 brands in a space at any given time is about right. Um, again, not about overstuffing it with you know 100 square feet per brand, but more about a very targeted sort of assortment. And so I think that's where we're heading. In terms of the number of stores... Um, I don't know. There's a lot of opportunity. Real estate's on sale at the moment, and so we're excited to sort of dig in. We've signed a few leases, which we're not talking about quite yet. But uh, there's there's new stores that'll be coming in the relative near term uh, in new markets for us. Um, and so you know, generally, we've seen opportunity in most major metropolitan cities in the country, along with you know their satellite suburban markets. Um, the other sort of piece that I think would have been less of a priority. A year and a half ago that's much more interesting now is international, um, where there's a lot of brands that are really thinking about opportunities there. And we also have taken on some strategic capital over the past couple of years from um, some groups representing interests in Europe and Asia that allows us a little bit of infrastructure. And so we're looking at that a little bit more seriously in in a few different markets. Um, So there's no ideal number or target number. I think for us, the thing we continue to recognize about the space is, first of all, that neighborhood goods is always gonna be an incomplete product, right? There's always gonna be something to change and update and otherwise. And I think that's what's gonna keep it special and fresh. Um, I think that's also the reason why we're afforded the opportunity to exist was that there was a little bit of stagnation in the retail industry and they lost track of consumer behavior and preference. And so, I think for us, we'll remain nimble. You know, if you had asked me beginning of last year how many stores we were going to do last year, it probably was going to be, you know, five to 10, and we did one, right? It's just the way it played out. Um, And I think what it has ultimately afforded us, though, uh, is a very formative period where we've been able to grow up a lot and build a huge amount of efficiency and uh, operational sort of clout into the business. And so, I think we're now in a position where we can sort of expand very quickly in moments, more slowly in others. It's just going to be purely opportunistic um, and just commensurate with where we find great real estate, where we see brand demand and otherwise. And so there'll be a lot more from us. Um, CPG will continue to be a focus. We've expanded the marketplace into all the stores. Um, Restaurants will continue to be in all stores. They've been doing brilliantly well. Um, Otherwise, I think it will be the general ratio of parallel to wellness and otherwise that we have today. I think the other sort of category that's interesting for us is these sort of experience-based higher price point products like Outer, Tonal, etc., uh, that are more particular decisions to make online. And so yeah. we'll continue to play there. Um, but, you know, the sky's the limit. Um, or it's not. You know, there's a lot to sort of work out. You know, who knows when the next pandemic's going to happen or the next sort of uh, bump in the road will sort of come up. But... Generally, we see a huge amount of opportunity ahead, and uh, we're sort of in a really interesting position to really charge after it. So we're feeling excited.
0: Yeah, what's been your take on fundraising? Are you said that the recent funding has, uh, I guess, afforded some of this expansion? Are you in a good place now? Are you? How would you describe? Well, it?
1: Well, we've raised twenty-seven and a half million dollars over the past, you know, two or three years. Um, we haven't raised anything since the pandemic started. Uh, but we had just raised just before the pandemic started our Series A. And so, yeah, we're in a good position. We'll, we'll continue to look at opportunities out there. But the sort of unexpected thing for us is that we found ourselves on a path to near-term profitability through all of this. So wow. with the contemplated openings and otherwise, we find ourselves in a very, very, very sort of aggressive trajectory, but also uh, reaching profitability, which was not originally on the cards for us. So, yeah, we'll, we'll raise additional cash and... Um, we'll look at the right way of doing that but it's just a it's a very different proposition than what we would have been thinking about otherwise you know we probably would have been in 2020 in a position without the pandemic where we would have had to go raise a lot more before the end of that year um instead we've been in this position where we've been able to really sort of grow the existing business unlock a lot of opportunity and that that serves us extremely well as we look ahead so you know the, the that process will come up um but we're not rushing into anything.
0: They're profitable, ladies and gentlemen. I like to end it on that note. Well, we're not
1: profitable yet, but but hypothetically, (laughs) yes. Uh, No, I mean, like we'll we'll get there. We we need to sort of uh, accomplish a few things first, maybe even raise a little bit of money, but we'll be profitable next year if everything plays to plan.
0: Right on. Well, Matt, thank you so much for being here. Great conversation.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: That's all for this episode. Our theme music is by Otis McDonald. If you liked this episode, be sure to share it with someone else you think would. Thanks for listening to The Glossy Podcast.